You're tuned to KZYX, Pilo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, streaming live at kzyx.org. Coming up, a special from the Mendocino Theater Company, American Gothic, an evening of Edgar Allan Poe. This hour-long reading features several of Poe's poems as well as dramatizations of two of his most beloved short stories, The Cask of Montalado and The Telltale Heart. That's Radio Theater coming up next. Jordan, and welcome to American Gothic, Edgar Allan Poe. For the ancient Celts, dark, cold winter set in about November 1st, time of death and dying. The boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred. Souls of the dead would arise from the mist. To ward them off, great bonfires filled the horizon. Crops and animals were burned. Travelers, wanderers, those straying from home to avoid being recognized, masked. Angels, devils, who could tell the difference when facing mayhem and mischief-making? People beg the heavens, how do we placate these supernatural powers? Canst thou not rid us of them? Fright, horror, evil, curses, life, death, a boundary between the good and the evil, between heaven and hell, a black cat stalks, having come from under a witch's long black robe, the crone. The cat stared toward a single lamp being held aloft by a man in the shadows. He leans under a building's eave, the shadow black as the night, as the cat's, as the witch's robe. And yet we see his face, a roundish face, with black hair caressing the wide, white brow, the brows dark, above penetrating eyes, eyes that see into the soul of the cat, the witch of all mankind. Those eyes see beyond the witch, beyond the pacing of the cat, beyond all the disguises men and women wear. He sees beyond shadows. He sees light in the inanimate and the animate. And the animate and the inanimate come to light from the quill he carries. This man too has Celtic origins. His father, an actor. His mother, an actor. When born, they name him after a character of a play in which they were performing. Edgar. Who gives anything to poor Tom? Where devils come from without and from within. Like his namesake's father, his abandoned him. His mother died a few years later. Adopted, ultimately, his adopting father severed all ties with the young man. His first love abandoned him. He then married his 13-year-old cousin, but she too died. Cast adrift, he wandered aimlessly. Death and abandonment pursued him relentlessly until he too left this world in an unknown darkness. On October 3rd, 1849, Edgar Allan Poe was found delirious on the streets of Baltimore, in great distress and in need of immediate assistance. He was taken to the hospital, where he died on Sunday, October 7th, at 5 in the morning. The cause of his death was unknown, and has been variously attributed to disease, alcoholism, substance abuse, suicide, or other more macabre causes. Perhaps his telltale heart gave out in his despair. But consider this, the first obituary of the man whose works we celebrate tonight. Edgar Allan Poe is dead. 
He died in Baltimore the day before yesterday. This announcement will startle many, but few will be grieved by it. The obituary adds these salient details. A person who walked the streets in madness or melancholy, with lips moving in indistinct curses, or with eyes upturned in passionate prayers, never for himself, for he felt or professed to feel that he was already dead. Oh, but the ghosts would haunt this reviewer, cast him aside, ignored by the literature he condemned. As Alfred Hitchcock once said, it's because I like Edgar Allan Poe's stories so much that I began to make suspense films. Suspense. Horror. Terror inhabiting his characters, thrust into the unknown. How might he respond to the call of nevermore, to being stalked by death, where no one may hide, a hand reaching out, transfixed by a glimpse of an eye. Eventually, the bells toll for all. There is no escape. In Baltimore, a bar still stands where legend says Poe was last seen drinking before his death. Local lore insists that a ghost whom they call Edgar haunts the rooms above. But his ghost haunts us everywhere. Can there be any doubt he is with us tonight? The Bells. Sleigh Bells, performed by Nancy Bartke. Wedding Bells, performed by Janet Atherton. Alarm Bells, performed by Daniel Brewer. Iron Bells, performed by Stephen Worthen. Hear the sledges with the bells? Silver bells! What a world of merriment their melody foretells. How they tinkle, tinkle, tinkle in the icy air of night, while the stars that oversprinkle all the heavens seem to twinkle with a crystalline delight, keeping time, time, time in a sort of runic rhyme to the tintinabulation that so musically wells from the bells, 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 from the jingling and the tinkling of the bells. Hear the mellow wedding bells, golden bells, what a world of happiness their harmony foretells through the balmy air of night how they ring out their delight from the molten golden notes and all in tune what a liquid ditty floats to the turtle dove that listens while she gloats on the moon Oh, from out the sounding cells, what a gush of euphony voluminously wells. How it swells, how it dwells on the future. How it tells of the rapture that impels to the swinging and the ringing of the bells, bells, bells. Of the bells, 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 bells. To the rhyming and the chiming of the bells. Hear the loud alarm bells, brazen bells. What tale of terror now their turbulency tells. In a startled ear of night, how they scream out their affright. Too much horrified to speak, they can only shriek, shriek out of tune. 
in a clamorous appealing to the mercy of the fire, in a mad expostulation with a deaf and frantic fire, leaping higher, 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 with a desperate desire, and a resolute endeavor now, now, to sit or never by the side of the pale-faced moon. Oh, the bells, 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 what a tale their terror tells of despair, how they clang and clash and roar, what a horror they outpour on the bosom of the palpitating air. Yet the ear it fully knows by the twanging and the clanging how the danger ebbs and flows. Yet the ear distinctly tells in the jangling and the wrangling how the danger sinks and swells by the sinking or the swelling and the anger of the bells, of the bells, of the bells, 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 and the clamor and the clangor of the bells. the tolling of the bells, iron bells. What a world of solemn thought their monotony compels. In the silence of the night, how we shiver with affright at the melancholy menace of their tone. For every sound that floats from the rust within their throats is a groan. And the people, ah, uh, the people, they that dwell up in the steeple all alone, and who tolling, 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 in that muffled monotone, feel a glory in so rolling on the human heart a stone. They are neither man nor woman. They are neither brute nor human. They are ghouls. And their king it is who tolls. And he rolls, 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 rolls a pain from the bells. And his merry bosom swells with a pain of the bells. And he dances and he yells, keeping time, 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 in a sort of runic rhyme, to the pain of the bells, of the bells, keeping time, 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 in a sort of runic rhyme, to the throbbing of the bells, of the bells, 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 to the sobbing of the bells, keeping time, 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 as he knells, 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 in a happy runic rhyme. To the rolling of the bells, of the bells, bells, bells. To the tolling of the bells, of the bells, 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 bells. To the moaning and the groaning of the bells. The Equivocator, performed by Mark Jordan. Montessor, performed by Daniel Brewer. Fortunato, performed by Stephen Worthen. and injuries Fortunato has heaped on me I have borne as I best can. But when he ventured into insult, I vowed revenge. I will not only punish, but punish with impunity. Did you threaten him? <laughs> Once resolved, I refused to take such a risk. But you cannot give Fortunato cause to doubt your goodwill. I continue to smile at him. He will never perceive that my smile derives from my thoughts of his end. Has this Fortunato a weak point? He prides himself on his connoisseurship of wine. As do you. Ah, yes, I too. Quite skillful in knowing vintages. 
and using them as a lure. This evening, it is the heart of Carnavale, a time of joyful madness. Montresor meets with Fortunato, who, it is obvious to most, had been drinking heavily, as much to celebrate as to suppress a head cold he is experiencing. Montresor and Fortunato greet each other, Fortunato giving Montresor an unaccustomedly emphatic embrace. Then Fortunato grasps Montresor's hand and pumps it. <coughs> My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. I have received a barrel of what passes for Amontillado, but I have my doubts. How? Amontillado? Impossible. I had my doubts, but was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you. I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado? I have my doubts. Amontillado. <coughs> and I would like to satisfy them with you. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults? My friend, no. I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you had an engagement. I have no engagement. But with you, <coughs> come! My friend, no. I see you are afflicted with a severe cold. The vaults are insufferably damp. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is nothing. Amontillado, you have been imposed upon. Fortunato takes Montresor by the arm, and so Fortunato leads Montresor to the Montresor Palazzo. They arrive to the empty Ca Montresor. All the servants have been dismissed to savor the delights of Carnavale. They need not return until morning. Montresor takes a lantern, hands it to Fortunato. Here, take this lamp. Let me take you to the wine. Montresor leads Fortunato down the long and winding staircase. Be careful, my friend. They end their descent at the catacombs, the cold and damp cellar of the palazzo. Not only where the wine is stored, but the white, crumbling bones of the Montresor ancestors. And is the Amontillado here? Where they're on. <coughs> Uh, it is nothing. Come, we will go back. Your health is precious. We will go back. You will become ill and I cannot be responsible. The cough is a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. Mm, true, true. Well, a taste of Madoc will defend us from the damp. Montresor withdraws a bottle of wine, knocking off the neck. Drink. I drink to the buried that repose around us. And to your long life. Fortunato then takes Montresor's arm and walks further into the vault. And the Montresors were a great and numerous family. Your motto? Nemo me impuni la chesset. No one harasses me with impunity. Good! They continue to walk deeper into the vaults. They pass through walls of piled bones. <coughs> <clears throat> we are below the river's bed. We will go back. It is too late. Your cough. It is nothing. Let us go on. But first another taste of that, Madoc. Fortunato takes the bottle and finishes the contents. He throws his arms upward in a wild gesticulation. Montessor looks at him, uncomprehending. Fortunato repeats the gesture. You do not comprehend. Not I. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. 
You are not one of the Masons. Yes, 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 yes. You, a Mason? Impossible. A Mason. A sign, a sign. It is this. Montresor pulls a trowel from underneath his jacket. You just... <laughs> but let us proceed to the Montiado. <clears throat> Be it so. Montresor takes Fortunato by the arm. Montresor and Fortunato continue through the vault, ever deeper into the crypt. They reach the end, where they see bones piled about them. The dark, damp walls close about them. At the end of the corridor, each man sees a recess, in depth about four feet, width about three, barely six foot high. It seems, to Fortunato, to have been built for no special purpose. Behind, a wall of solid granite. Fortunato lifts his torch, peers into the recess. I cannot see. <laughs> Herein lies the Amontillado. And so the unsteady and uncomprehending Fortunato steps forward, while Montresor follows just behind. I cannot go any further, and I do not see. Fortunato turns around, quite bewildered. Montresor pushes him to the wall. Swiftly, Montresor grasps one wrist and fetters it with a short chain hanging from the wall, then snaps the other wrist into a similar chain. Montresor lifts a chain hanging near Fortunato's waist and secures it to the wall. Fortunato stares in disbelief. Montresor steps back from the recess, flashing the key. <coughs> Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No? Then I must positively leave you. But I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado! <laughs> mm, true. The Amontillado. And while Fortunato laughs and coughs, Montresor pushes aside the rotting bones of his ancestors. From the darkness, Montresor pulls stone and mortar. He pulls the trowel from his coat and waves it at Fortunato. Then places the stone tier by tier, cementing each tier with the mortar. The Amontillado! <laughs> Montresor wonders, then realizes that Fortunato's moans are not those of a drunk anymore. Montresor continues to lay each tier, applies the mortar to each, a second tier, then a third, then a fourth. Montresor returns to his labor, laying a fifth tier, then a sixth, until a tear meets his chest. Montresor lifts the lantern, peers into the recess. <laughs> Stricken with fear, Montresor grabs his rapier and pokes the recess. He suddenly stops and breathes a sigh of relief. He realizes Fortunato could not have freed himself. <laughs> Montresor adds another tier, then another, filling up the opening with the eleventh and last tier. Only one space remains. 
Montresor is about to add the last stone when... <laughs> A very good joke indeed. <laughs> An excellent jest. We shall have many a rich laugh about it. <laughs> Over our wine. The <laughs> Amontillado. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado. But is it not getting late? Will they not be awaiting us at the square? The Lady Fortunato and the rest. Let us be gone. Let us be gone. For the love of God, Montessor! Yes, for the love of God. Fortunato? Fortunato! Montessor lifts the lamp to the wall and peers into the one remaining space. And? I hasten to make an end to my labor. I forced the last stone into position. I plastered it, thick and thorough. I piled the old rotting bones in front. Bowing toward the equivocator, Montessor exit. For half a century now, no mortal has disturbed these bones. In pace requiescat. The Raven, performed by Mervyn Gilbert. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as if someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. To some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly, I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly, I wished the morrow. Vainly, I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more." Presently, my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, oh, madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is, I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortals ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. 
Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here, I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mane of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance of war. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonium shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door with such a name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely, on the placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by a reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, Caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster Followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, Till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore Of never, never more. But the raven, still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat, engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl, whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet, violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press, ah, never more. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite, and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff, this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore.
prophet, said I. Thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by the God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden, whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden, whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word, I'll sign in parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked up starting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonium shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallet bust of palace just above my chamber door, and his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor, and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. Telltale Heart, Raskoff, performed by Scott Menzies, Greek Chorus, performed by Crystal Leatherwood, Nancy Bartke, and Janet Atherton. He has not been as others were. He has not seen as others saw. He could not bring his passions from a common spring. He could not awaken his heart to joy. To joy. To joy. True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken. Observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how the idea first entered Raskoff's brain, but once conceived, it haunted him day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I love the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. It was his eye. Only this. Only this. That old man had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, he made up his mind to take the life of the old man. He would rid himself of the eye forever. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. 
No madman could have done so. No madman, none. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. Every night, about midnight, Raskoff would turn the latch of the old man's door and open it. Oh, so gently. And then when he had made an opening sufficient for his head... Oh, so gently, Raskov put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed that no light shone out. Oh, so gently. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. He moved slowly, very, very slowly. So that he might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took Raskoff an hour to place his whole head within the opening to look upon the old man as he lay upon his bed. Would a madman have been so wise as this? Then I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously. Cautiously. But the hinges creaked. Just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. He did this for seven long nights. Every night, just at midnight, but found the eye always closed. It was impossible for Raskoff to do his plan deed, for it was not the old man who vexed him, but that evil eye. Every morning, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. He would have been a very perceptive old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, someone was spying upon him as he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than Raskoff did. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph to think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he could never probe my secret thoughts, my coming deed. He fairly chuckled at the idea, but he feared the old man had heard him, for he moved on the bed suddenly. Now you may think Raskoff drew back. But no. No. The room was black as pitch, for the shutters were fastened closed. There was no way the old man could see the opening of the door. Raskoff kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening. The old man sprang up in the bed. The bodiless airs flit through thy chamber in and out, and wave the curtain canopy so fitfully, so fearfully, above the closed and fringed lid neath which thy slumbering soul lies hid. Like ghosts the shadows rise and fall. Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour, Raskoff did not move a muscle. In all that time, the old man did not lie down. He sat, listening for whatever had made that cursed noise. <laughs> Raskoff knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from his own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo. He knew what the old man felt and pitied him. It is nothing but the wind in, in the chimney. The wind. The wind. I knew that the old man had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. The old man's fears grew steadily. He had been trying to believe that the sound he heard was nothing to worry about, but could not. If, 
It's merely a cricket, which has made a single chirp. He had been trying to comfort himself in vain. It was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused that old man to feel, although he neither saw nor heard it, the presence of that intruding head within the room. When I had waited a long time, I opened a very, very little crevice in the lantern. You cannot imagine how stealthily, 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 a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. That horrid eye was open! Wide, wide open! Wide, wide open! I grew furious as I gazed upon it! He saw it with perfect distinctness, a dull blue, a hideous veil over it! It chilled the very marrow in my bones, but I could see nothing else. I had directed the ray, as if by instinct, precisely upon that damned spot. Did Raskoff not tell you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of his senses? There came to those exquisitely sensitive ears a low, dull, quick sound such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. It was the beating of the old man's heart. The old man's heart. The old man's heart. The old man's heart. It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates courage in a soldier. But even yet, Raskoff kept still, scarcely breathing. I held the lantern motionless, trying to steadily maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart grew quicker and quicker, and louder and louder every instant. That old man's terror must have been extreme. That beating grew louder, louder every moment. Louder! 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 Mark me well. I have told you that I am nervous. Now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. In the silence of the night, how we shiver with affright at the melancholy meaning of their tone for every sound that floats from the rust within their throats is a groan. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the old man's heart must burst. A new anxiety seized him. The horrid beating might be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. He threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor, smiling gaily, smothering every cry, pushing down, down. For many minutes, Raskov could hear the muffled heart beating, beating. This, however, did not vex him. It could not be heard beyond the wall. The old man was dead. Stone dead. Stone, stone dead! I placed my hand upon his heart. I held it there many minutes. I felt no pulse, no beat, nothing. 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 That horrid eye would trouble me no more. No more. No more. <laughs> if you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned as he worked hastily but in silence. 
First of all, he dismembered the corpse. He cut off the head and the arms and the legs. Then he took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited the parts therein. I then replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even the old man's, could have detected anything wrong. There was no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. He had used a tub to catch all. <laughs> I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? I opened the door so confidently. We are from the nearby police office. A neighbor heard a shriek during the night. Suspected foul play. Complain to our office. We have been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I invited them in. Welcome, gentlemen, welcome. The shriek was my own in a dream. Your dream? Does not an old man reside here as well? Well, yes, he does. And the old man, is he about? Absent in the country. May we see the house? I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. I brought chairs into the room. Sit, gentlemen, rest from your fatigues. I, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot where I had hidden the corpse. And you say that noise was a scream in your sleep? Yes, yes, nothing but that. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. Ah, in the country, you say? Yes, in the country, as I have said. Did he go far? Not far. I do not think far. Not too far. To visit family, no doubt. No doubt. I believe so. Yes, to visit family. Ere long, I wish them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. You seem in some discomfort. Do you need some aid? Of course not. Just a bit of a headache from my dream. Yes, they can be disturbing. The ringing became more distinct. I spoke eagerly to them, hoping to end that ringing. But it continued, each ring clear, distinct. You seem to be somewhat uncomfortable. No, not at all. Just from lack of a sleep. What could I do? The officer seemed to hear it not. I gasped for breath. You must be feeling ill. I talked more quickly, more vehemently. No, not at all, just fine. You seem pale, your face. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations. No, just the fatigue of a poor sleep, of early waking to an unexpected knock. Fine, I am, will be fine. Uh, is it not time for you to leave? Have you no duties to perform? Oh, God, what could I do? Damn it all to hell! This is a torment that I cannot endure! Do you not hear it? We hear nothing. Be silent in that solitude. For then the spirits of the dead who stood in life before thee are again in death around thee, and their will shall then overshadow thee. Is it possible they do not hear? Almighty God! No, no, they hear, they suspect, they know. They sit there making a mockery of my horror. Anything is more tolerable than their derision. I could bear their hypocritical smiles no longer. Hark, louder, 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 louder! 
What? 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 Villains! Dissemble no more! I admit the deed! Tear up the planks! Here! Here is the beating of his hideous heart! And the stars shall not look down from their high thrones in the heaven. With light like hope to mortals given, but their red orbs without beam. To thy weariness shall seem as a burning and a fever which would cling to thee forever. Annabelle Lee, performed by Mark Friedrich. many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived you may know by the name of Annabel Lee and this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea but we loved with a love that was more than love I and my Annabel Lee with the love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that, long ago in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabelle Lee, so that her high-born kinsmen came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulchre in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, when envy and her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabelle Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we. And neither the angels in heavens above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And the stars never rise but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so, all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in her sepulchre there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea.
Lo, tis a gala night within the loathsome latter years. An angel throng, be winged, be dight, in veils and drowned in tears, sit in a theater to see a play of hopes and fears, while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. Mimes in the form of God on high mutter and mumble low, and hither and thither fly, mere puppets they, who come and go at bidding of vast formless things that shift the scenery to and fro, flapping from out their condor wings invisible woe. That motley drama, oh, be sure, shall not be forgot, with its phantom chased forevermore by a crowd that seizes it not, through a circle that ever returneth into the self-same spot, and much of madness, and more of sin and horror, the soul of the plot. But see amid the mimic rout a crawling shape intrude, a blood-red thing that writhes from out the scenic solitude. <laughs> it writhes, it writhes with mortal pangs, the mimes become its food, and seraphs sob at vermin fangs in human gore imbued. <laughs> out, out are the lights, out all. And over each quivering form, the curtain of funeral pall comes down with the rush of a storm, while the angels, all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy Man, and its hero, the Conqueror Worm. Edgar Allan Poe, directed by Lynn Sotos, assistant director Sandra Hawthorne, sound by Ken Krauss, artistic director Pamela Allen. Good night. For more information, go to mendocinotheater.org or email us at mtc at mcn.org. 